Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm thrilled and humbled to be in dialogue with Daphna Scharfman. We will be discussing her newly published book, Jerusalem in the Second World War, published by Routledge Publishers, 2024. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? What events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult. Okay. I was born in Haifa, third generation in Israel. Always was interested in history. I heard many stories about the events during the British Nambul for my parents who lived in then Palestine and served in the Haganah and the British Army during the war. I studied political science and my PhD was on human rights in Israel and later edited a study, one of the first years of human rights and foreign policy. My book also addresses the study human rights and real politics, told the story of the post-war period in Europe, clandestine Jewish celebration from Europe, both Italy, and the serious diplomatic pressure that were applied by the British government against this operation. Can you summarize your book for us? What does your book convey? Okay. This book aims to tell a story that was not told before. I remember reading in Hatala Latar book on the Mandate period that one of the British officials interviewed described life in Jerusalem as a never, never land. And I thought it would be interesting to find out how a city in time for war can be described in good terms. I hope that the readers will be able to see this famous city in a different light, also introducing more human aspects as well as political espionage and war events. The book is the first to present the unique story of the city of Jerusalem during the events of the war and how it played an exceptional role in both the military and civilian aspects of the war. It provides in-depth analysis of this spatial and temporary situation in Jerusalem, offering a perspective that is different from the usual political, strategic, military analysis. Although battles were raging in the nearby countries of Syria and Lebanon, and the war was fought in Egypt and the Western Desert, the people who came to Jerusalem, as well as those who lived there, had different agendas and perspectives. Some were spies and intelligence officers, others were exiles or immigrants from Europe who managed at the last moment to escape Nazi persecution. All were probably conscious of the fact that when the war came to an end, local rivalry and wanting conflict would take the center stage again. This was a time of special, magical, grown out moment that made shed light 
life on eternity, more peaceful kind of Jerusalem, but unfortunately would not to be banned. Can you tell us about Britain's plans to evacuate Palestine in 1941 and 42? What would have been the ramifications for Jews? Okay, um, following the German victory in the Western Desert in 1941 and 42, and the one of the British military provision in Egypt, there was a great danger to Palestine and especially to the Jewish community. Evacuation plans were debated, but they did not include the local population who was to stay and face the German occupation. There was an evacuation of some British families from India. European refugees and local beings were also trying to escape to Jerusalem. By mid-1942, the Germans were already planning a Holocaust to Palestine. The Palestine High Commissioner, Sir Howard McMichael, requested the government to announce officially that the British did not inform to retreat from Palestine. In an interview with Hutbank, the president of the Shoe National Council, on 1st May 1941, McMichael assured him that there was no intention to evacuate the country. Banks expressed the danger to be ensured even from a temporary retreat from the British army from Palestine, which could be paper for the Jewish population. He also pointed out the existing serious internal danger of attack by Arab gangs. British intelligence summary of 5th May 1941 reported on the mood of the Jewish community following the German success in the Balkans and the Western Desert. Issues that caused great fear in the Jewish public workplace. There was fear among survivors of the Nazi era that they would endure it again. Many groups believed that Hitler would also bomb Tel Aviv and were worried over the lake of Putibel, Air, Bhutan, and Shelko. Beyond this, they feared the renewal of Arab nationalistic activity. According to the report, these fears were translated into harsh expressions of disgust of the British authorities and dismay at Britain's refusal to recognize the Jews of Palestine and their capacity for support in the war effort while recognizing French, Norwegian, Greek, and other authors. By the winter of 1942, there appears to be no immediate danger to Palestine or its vicinity. In the Western Desert, the front was established among the Gazala Hakim line, and the German advance in Russia had been halted by the Red Army winter counter offensive and the front line that stabilized 280 miles south of Moscow. The situation changed rapidly after the fall of the group on 21st of June, when Roman chased the 8th Army before the British having an opportunity to regroup. In a series of battles that started in the first week of July 1942, Roman was finally checked at El Alamein, just over 100 kilometers from the center of the short state of anxiety became worse at the end of June, as unlike during the crisis in the spring of 1941, by this time, more was known about the unloading of European glory by the Nazis. 
the stimulant should delegation that met High Commissioner and Michael on 1st July 1942 proposed to organize and train more military and special police units in the Shul. Moshe Shelkov, head of the Jewish Agency Political Department, voiced the understanding of the past situation faced by the British Empire, but emphasized, like Benjamin, the British will, the unique predicament of the Jews. Even a temporary retreat from Palestine might lead to the destruction of the Jews and the world of freedom ration. Our situation, he said, is worse than in Britain. There is no vengeance to the British nation, but Palestine is the head of, of Gideon. The British evacuation plan of 1941-1942, the planning for a possible British withdrawal from the region and from Palestine in particular, as documented in British pipes, that shed some light on the strategic, political, and even rapture viewpoint that were in the background over over more than a half and a year and a half of turmoil and anxiety. Ronald's life commented on the overall problematic process and I war. From April May 1941 until the defeat of Ronald at Alame in October November 1942, evacuation plans of one sort or another were constantly under discussion in London, Cairo, and Jerusalem. The experience of Dunkirk and Greece had shown the necessity for forward planning of military forces were to be saved in the face of While the withdrawal from Britain's Somaliland in August 1940, for Hong Kong in December 41, and Malaya in January, February 42, had demonstrated how humiliating the collapse and slide of the colonial administration could be in the face of the enemy. The colonial office recognized that the manner in which Britain abandoned its local sympathizers and native officials and the rational basis on which chosen people had been evacuated was a blow for Britain's colonial prestige, which could take a long time to arrive. End of quote. In a most secret telegram sent by Pips May 1941 by colonial office to the High Commissioner Lake Michael, the principles which would govern an evacuation of British editions and other British civilians were presented. The first was with the Jewish and other Indian population would have to stay put. There would be no evacuation of half a million Jews. Furthermore, the local inhabitants would be compelled to remain in Palestine by the use of multiple measures in order to protect the transport network for exclude of refugees attempting to leave the country. The second principle was that none of the evacuees were to be sent to England due to shipping difficulties and the shortage of food there, and will have to stand anywhere in the empire. The third principle was that together with the curation, it would be necessary to implement the cold air policy. But Michael replied, he said his administration assessment and wanted the colonial office is the problem of the Jews which they had ignored. His view at that time was the Jews in Palestine should not be abandoned. He was that it was not possible either morally and legally 
to make arrangements for British subjects were leaving the Jews behind. Since the fate of the Jews under German occupation would be far worse than that of the Brits. The Palestine administration had suspended all discussion of possible evacuation. McMichael also stated that he was certain that the Jewish agency leader would not leave. The colonial office supported the state group claim, and McMichael was asked to change his own recommendation. As a result, the royal debate was closed and abandoned. By quote, McMichael considered that this was the last time that the moral or political implications of the state put order were given consideration. The Jews were to remain in Palestine and the British were to depart. The administration encountered an unexpected difficulty in the search for immediate asylum for the third category of Obakini, British Royal Officer. There were about 5,000 British women and children in Palestine, 70% of whom were Jews. However, the government of the Dominions, India, and Eastern Central Africa that were requested to accept the people refused. The replies received were either totally negative or so embarrassing worldwide that the entire plan had to be shelved. Australia agreed to provide asylum for all the British non Jews but not to the British state. In June 1942, Roman military success and the crossing of the Egyptian, border, Egyptian border by the German forces led to a renewed panic and the ensuing evacuation plan. This time, the policy was to be comprehensive. In June, the Middle East War Party formulated a general civilian evacuation plan for the entire Middle East from Persia to Egypt, where we were by the, all the British subjects except certain categories were to stay put if the army pulled out. In Palestine, some 1,620 people were incorporated in this patient category, including 300 Arab and Jewish political leaders who would be in particular danger if captured by the Germans. The rest were mainly the 1,045 members of families of non-Jewish government officers and the police force. All other British subjects were to be left behind. Government officials were to stay on for as long as possible and then to regrow the military. In addition to the military withdrawal, plans in Palestine arrangements were made in full cooperation with the Jewish agency for scout airs policy. It included the destruction of oil resources other than essential water supply and stocks of food. Meanwhile, dumps of food, water, and petrol were propelled along the desert route to Basra for use by British civilians living Palestine. The Minister of State in the Middle East, Richard Casey, was anxious that the war Jews might ignore the British decision that left them in Palestine and decide to follow the same route of the British war of the Middle East, breaking the road and increasing the sales. Consequently, one of the first steps planned that would be taken after the declaration of the of emergency 
was the requisition or destruction of all civilian transport in Palestine. In 1941, there were 5,000 buses and 3,000 transport vehicles licensed in Palestine. The sector rationing was fought since May 1942, already in its own However, certain mutations were declared. On August 42, the government announced that in three weeks, all 5,000 civilian cars licensed would be sentenced. A new license would only be granted to the very initial cases before the contribution to the war effort. I concluded that as a result of the population, that as a result, the population lost all options of living, as I quote. In other words, with or without petrol, one could hardly move one car within Palestine even before a state of emergency had been declared and would not be able to drive it across the border and risk congesting the, the exit of the operation as long as the British authorities still had hope. This ensured that all the people in Palestine would be trapped is no opportunity to transport them out of danger. In these two critical years, the British administration made a complete change of its policy from the Michael aspiration for equal treatment in 1941 to the possible use of force against the desperate population. Like conclusion, we put the point in our view to another case of colonial collapse and evacuation. Despite all the high commissioners' moral reservations in 1941 about abandoning the issue to the Germans and the cancellation of the area evacuation plan due to the failure to fight a refuge for the British troops alongside all the British military subjects who did Palestine, by 1942, when the threat of British military collapse in the Middle East were the very real ones, the British decided to save everyone they could. They were all contingent to plan, which revealed the attitude of the British officials in London, Cairo, or Jerusalem, but were nevertheless not implemented. The Allied guns triumphed against Roland of all, all told of evacuation of Palestine were relegated. Can you tell us about the Nazis' hypothetical plans for an occupied Palestine? Yes. As noted, the days of anxiety during the 1942 crisis were made worse by the information already known about the Holocaust in Europe. However, the real danger was much closer, as the Nazi regime was by now preparing a Holocaust in Palestine, assumed to be occupied soon by Roman forces. According to historian Klaus Michael Malaman and Martin Cooper, there was an or, already an asset Einsatz Commando unit sent by in Athens. The unit was to work together with Roman armed to Palestine and was to organize the last murder of the almost 500,000 Jews in Palestine. They were expecting to have many Arab collaborators who were hostile to Jews and on friendly terms with the Germans. The order was issued on 13 July that the commando had the authority to take executive measures against the civilian population. The unit occupied at that stage 
of 24 men, including seven officers. The commander was to be working around for fuel to go for 20 July to receive instructions from Rommel for the imminent deployment of his unit. Signal himself, signal his intention to eliminate the Jews of Palestine in a 28 November 41 conversation in Berlin is Haj Amin Erkusseini, the exiled Jerusalem Muslim. Hitler said to him that the outcome of the war in Europe and the Middle East would also decide the fate of the Arab world. German troops intended to break through the South South region of Europe into the Middle East. This would result in the liberation of Arab peoples. Hitler said the Germany only objective there would be the destruction of the Jews. A report by Walter Scherenberg, chief of the foreign intelligence in the SD, German Security Service, on the local situation, that stated that in Palestine it was common for people to greet each other on the street with the hey, hi, Hitler, a greeting. The extraordinary Arab pro-German attitude was mainly due to the hope that Hitler would drive out the Jews. Alfred Kessler wrote about mysterious chop signs appearing on Jewish horn as indication that an Arab had taken his claim to redeem the house when Rommel arrived. In the Battle of Alm Haifa, the start of on 30 August, the German army offensive failed by 5 September, and it was evident that it would not be withdrawn. Plans for deploying security police and SD personnel in Egypt and Palestine were planned. Malamant on Cooper's summary of the danger to the Jews in Palestine in 1942 is definite and clear. In short, they write, all the different plans and the speculation about them indicate that the issue would hardly have been in the position to organize a rest evacuation in time and provide sufficient opposition to the Africa Corps and their Arab, Arab allies. On a larger scale, but otherwise analog to the armed Jewish resistance in Europe, there would have been a desperate battle against Africa and its Arab allies in Palestine. In the end, the short world undoubtedly being publicly annihilated. The Jews of Palestine were saved only by the military development on the North African front. As Lord Keith wrote, the British District Coalition of Jerusalem rightly concluded the deprivation from which Palestine had suffered sank into insignificance in comparison with what Palestine had been. In your opinion, should the history of the Yishuv during the years 1939 to 1945 belong more in a course on the history of the Holocaust or more in a course on the military history of World War II or both? Why do you feel this way? There are two levels of reality here. On the day-to-day -day existence, the Yishuv was part of the Middle East War and its commotion as I described. However, the Jewish people, and especially those who had families in Europe, also were concerned about the Holocaust and tried to find out what was happening in Europe. 
after the war, many of the survivors immigrated to Palestine and brought the memory of the Holocaust to the daily life of all the people in Beijing and later in Israel. Can you tell us about British fears of German infiltration of Palestine by way of Jewish refugees from Europe? The British fear of German agents among the Jewish refugees was an unproven fear, but a tragic consequence. In the early war years, the danger of infiltration into Palestine of German by among the Jewish refugees was a constant British argument against Jewish things toward compassion and attitude to wartime immigration. However, British relentless efforts to find such spice proved aborted. In one instance on 15 February 1940, Zionist leader met in London with colonial secretary Malcolm McDonald to present a request to admit about 300 Jews from German-occupied countries who already had certificates for Palestine, but had not left Germany or Poland in the day required by the British authorities. McDonald decided to admit about 170 years and to refuse entry to the remaining adults, even after the Jewish agency needed conducting checks and submitted guarantees for them. Faced with Professor Zedek Botetsky, head of the Board of Deputy on British Jews, accusation that if the Finger was filtering the condemnation to death of these people, who were now known to the Germans, and faced being sent to concentration camp, McDonald acknowledged the gravity inherent in the system, but asked that the Jewish agency understand the matter from his point of view. The German authorities were anxious to get the good agency to Palestine and might pressure some immigrants by threat against their relatives. Although he agreed that the chances may not be more than one in a hundred. The colonial office demanded vigorous action by the foreign office to deter collaboration with the Jewish traffic, either by government of embarkation countries for consort in distant Latin America countries who supplied the world to Jewish refugees. H.F. Downey, head of the Middle East Department of the Colonial Office, suggested that the government in question be asked whether they were prepared to accept these Jews and recommend them summary deportation of passengers who were captured with such documents without first consulting the government control. However, the British search for enemy agents among Jewish well encountered the setback when Britain, Britain Ambassador Turkey responded to a foreign office telegram. I regret neither passport control officer nor consul general can supply any evidence of enemy character of organized. The Admiralty was warned by the colonial office of the danger of enemy aliens infiltrating into Palestine under the guise of illegal immigrants, and it was suggested the vulnerable authorities should intercept and divert all suspected ships to Haifa for examination. Yet the Admiralty denied the request spoken they they do not feel, however, that this danger is likely to be serious enough 
in the case of sheep carrying Jewish refugees for persecution to Jewish veterans in Palestine to justify the court for calls. Downey wrote to Chief Secretary and the person in Jerusalem to present legal aspects of the detention of suspected illegal immigrants. But his hand of a yet unfound German spy went even further beyond any democratic concept of legal process. And he remarked that it was desirable for such to detain to be detained for the whole period of the war. Nevertheless, no enemy able to yet be discovered, and a few months later, on 20 August 1940, McMichael reported to the colonial secretary, Lord Lloyd, that from about 3,500 illegal immigrants that had arrived in Palestine on the ship with Mitzal, Hinda, and Pastoria, 15 were suspected of being enemy able communist or otherwise undesirable. Although the police authorities are not in a position to establish beyond doubt that they are in fact enemy agents. Richard Latham of the Foreign Office Refugee Section was critical of the official use of non-existent agents. He commented, My inclination is to believe that the whole idea is a CEO canal, begotten of the desire to further fight, fortify themselves in pursuing a policy which, however necessary on political ground, is unavoidably inhuman to a degree. What does your research teach us about intelligence and espionage during World War II? Palestine at war was a center for intelligence activity. Several espionage organizations were active. The British Secret Imperial Service, SIS, and the Special Operation Executive, SOE, were stationed in Jerusalem, in addition to MI5 representatives that closely surveyed the activity of Jews and Arabs in Palestine. The American Office of Strategic Services, OXS, was also with all were involved in various operations in the Middle East. They were also cooperating with the Jewish Agency Intelligence Department. Their interests were similar concerning winning the war, but were rather different as to the future of Palestine and the era. It was the contrast between the raw war goals and the post-war views and interests, which dictated the limits of cooperation. What was Operation Atlas in October 1944? Can you describe the intended plans? The Operation Atlas was the landing of five German and Arab paratroopers near Jerry Court in October 1944. It was the only known German Arab parachuted espionage mission to Palestine, initiated by German intelligence cooperation with the excellent Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj Amina. Three of the five, two German templars from Palestine and one Arab from Jerusalem, were captured 10 days after their landing in the camp near Jericho. They told their intriguing story to their British interrogators. They parachuted near Jericho on October 1944. The Palestine police reported having discovered on 9 October, five kilometers north of Jericho, 
four parachute and a parachute containing heavy container, having one ten gun, one automatic pistol, dynamite, bicycle, a generator, medical supply, map, and Arabic German dictionary and camera. The first telegram of the situation was sent from Palestine on 11 October 1944 to the Secretary of State for the Foreign Aid, Oliver Stanley, informing him of indication that one or more parachutists of unknown nationality may have been dropped in the Jordan Valley during the previous 15 days. But so far, no man would be set down. On 16 October, the Palestine Authority informed the colonial secretary of the capture of that day of two Germans who were formed by a patrol of Transjordan from two forts in the hill country west of Jericho. The Germans were accompanied by an Arab in civilian clothes who had also been arrested. All were being brought to Jerusalem for interrogation. The security review of the week ending 25 October provided a report of the initial interrogation of the captured parachutists, suggesting that the object of their mission was to promote Arab resistance organization in Palestine with Hans Amin Husseini as the crime mover of the nation. The only sabotage target for the crew was the Wittenberg Tower Station near the Jordan River. What is your book's contribution to the social history of mandatory Palestine? The British presence in Jerusalem from 1918 strongly influenced the development of Arab and Jewish culture and social life. That was greatly enhanced by the international European impact when the city became a cosmopolitan center hosting military exile royal Germany. The residents of the rural neighborhood in this era also prevented the modern trend of that daily living. Meanwhile, the Jewish issue made efforts to host the stream of soldiers, patients, visiting or convalescent in Jerusalem, hoping to establish contact and explain its youth and future program. The British presence in Palestine had a major influence on culture and social life. Then, 13 years and began and began with the military occupation by the soldiers of General Edmund Allenby that was later replaced by a civil mandate government in life. The British soon began to organize social and sports activities from themselves and with the local population. They introduced a system of social and cultural customs and rituals that including hunting, gardening, theater, sport, and picnics in the countryside, to various social events through music, drawing, and school. This symbolically charged arena was linked to Western values, norms, and practices in general, and the British ones in particular. However, local circumstances also shaped the British colonial culture and society, which was characterized by rank, social factor, and internal disparity in issues such as class, occupation, or gender. 
collapsed symptoms affect the relationship both within the community and between it and other groups in the mandatory public space, and in particular in urban centers. During the mandate period, several institutions and clubs developed, which although not explicitly closed for locals, in fact operated as distinctly British spaces. Those of you, the Jerusalem Sport Club or the Ramble Bainhan, and the popular amateur theater association, the Jerusalem Dramatic Society. Alongside them, there were also meetings that crossed ethnic, political, and religious boundaries. They were held at exclusive social events common to both the British and the local elite. That is, the salons of Rendon Bostasses. Katie Antonius and Annie Lando. Meetings also took place in voluntary civic associations, such as the Rotary Club, which had upper middle class membership and were close to women. Among the other classes, group social gatherings occurred in cinemas, bars, and clubs. Western education had a profound impact on our social and cultural life. Students used to read the classical works of English literature by authors such as Charlotte Bronte and Charles Dickens, from both the public and school library and in private collections. In addition to concerts of the music hall of the YMCA club, some Arabs also frequented the Palestine Philharmonic Orchestra playing at the Jerusalem Edison Theater in a Jewish neighborhood. Sports usually concentrated at the YMCA club, still up to today. Another sport and social hub was the Arab Sport Club in Baka. Hiking and biking were also very popular. Arab families were visiting European style garden cafe in the resort towns of Beit Jala, south of Jerusalem and near Bethlehem, as well as Ramallah to the north of the city. And sometimes they took vacations in the neighboring country and even traveled, traveled to Europe. The Jewish community was very diverse, comprising various ultra Orthodox groups and secular Jews, and all time Jews and family, along with newcomers from Europe, many of them refugees. Hagar and Lazar wrote in Jewish neighborhoods, particularly the Havia. Jews from Germany and Austria found their huge and they preserved the life from which they had been uprooted, keeping loudly to themselves. They lived some positive development in the dark period. Despite political difficulties, she wrote, and the difficulties of World War II, Jerusalem residents were in the process of building a vibrant and active city. Although Arab, Greek, and Armenians in the city maintain their traditional value and activity, the city provided opportunities for increased literacy, widespread education, and a variety of social interactions with people from other backgrounds, culture, religion, denomination, and class. Concerning Jerusalem at war, Christopher Holm described in an interview with Lazar the exciting life in Jerusalem at wartime. Many people in good day I knew came to Jerusalem many 
many friends who served in this or other unit, based in Tehran and later in Wood. Others came to Jerusalem after conducting operations against the Italian in Ethiopia. Others were soon leaving for the Far East. Jerusalem was the meeting place. There were many journalists. I'm sure that anyone stationed in Cairo writes to read Jerusalem. The city attracted an international community. It was a cosmopolitan place. He described the intriguing and unique character of the city. It was the kind of Orient, but it was also very European. I lived in an Arab house on the edge of the old city. One could hear tremendous ringing of church bells and people called to prayer every morning. You could call it Levant or use any historical term you like for this marvelous assortment of sneaked centers from the old city-like world. And then there were the Jerusalem with whom I could speak German, people who knew the music and painting I knew, people who had the sort of life I had. Wolfgang Hitzheimer von Nazar about the spatial and mainly atmosphere and the bow of the King David that was absolutely magnificent. In his view, Palestine was different from other British colonies and history. To think that the English would have governed, governed a country like Palestine where half of the population was as civilized as the Jews, German immigrants who would come, who would never come, who had never left Germany, came to Palestine because Palestine was the only place they could come, who gave parties where Goethe or Matthias Claudius or the German Romantics were read. It was a civilized world, civilized world in danger. How did World War II impact Jerusalem's entertainment industry, tourism industry, and hospitality industry? Can you describe how its hotels, cafes, and cinemas were impacted? Can you share some specific examples? The Second World War brought prosperity to Jerusalem cultural life and leisure activity due to the vast and changing presence of Allied soldiers. Stadiums of sport club were teeming with activity, movie theater was full, and radio programs enjoyed a large audience and expanding broadcasting power. Jerusalem had a lot to offer. The Western establishment were very popular among the British administrators, as well as strong reporters who were in Jerusalem to cover events in the Middle East. They were joined by the urban elite artists in Jerusalem bohemians. Most of the cafes opened around Central Zion Square, but also in smaller neighborhood centers. The cinemas were very popular among people of all communities and religious, and during quiet times, they served as a shared venue of recreation. Cultural life in Jerusalem also flourished in private homes where exclusive events were held for members of the high society. Renowned artists who came to Palestine to perform for the general public were often invited to give private concerts in front of a small cruising group. The Western musical repertoire was important. Classical music planning institutes were established through the city. 
and the whole thing was the most classical way and popular music content. Western music with American influence was played at the private parties and music venues, while singers and entertain entertainers from Cairo and the rest of demonstrated Jerusalem and during an intimate connection to the culture of the region. An interesting example of life in the city was Café Tat in the city center on Hamedi'in, Fawcett Street, that ran a well-known tapestry, patronized by government officials, judges, army officers, and consuls. Since 1936, it was also the unofficial headquarters of the Haganah in Jerusalem, and secret hidings for illegal arms were constructed in its backyard. David Cohen noted that the cafe was known as the Nuclear Reserve, hosting a wide assortment of people from Arab defending Greek's CID officers, Haganah commanders, and Irgul and Stern group combatants who all behaved like perfect gentlemen. Can you tell us about the history of the King David Hotel during World War II? Who were its notable guests? The King David Hotel occupies a unique place in Jerusalem history since its autumn until today. It was built by the Palestine Hotel Company that was founded by the Jewish Mosseri family of Egypt. The company purchased from the Greek Orthodox Patriarch in 1929, four and a half hours of Jerusalem Julian Green, today called Baby Street, in order to believe a luxury hotel. From its earlier days, the hotel hosted royalty, the Dowager Empress of Persia, Queen Nadli of Egypt, and King Abdullah I of Jordan. Stayed at the hotel, also were head of state that had to flee their country like King Alfonso XIII of Spain forced to abdicate in 1931, the Emperor Hayat Selassie of the Tomb of Ethiopia driven out by the Italians in 1936. In October 1938, the British Army started the 40-bedroom and 17-bathroom of the hotel sports floor for its Palestine headquarters, soon to be joined by the civilian government seeking more security. After the beginning of the war, all rooms were sized and the army installed communication center in the basement and the bottom two floors of the garden annex. Generals Ochindek, Montgomery, Alexander, and Tate of Pekka stayed in the hotel on their way to or from the Asian War Theater in the Tehran and the Adab conference. The Palestine CID and Army Intelligence recruited many of the hotel's waiters, chambermaids, bartenders, and guests to monitor suspected active agents' con- contact with our politicians, often made in the hotel The King David had a unique state or had Smith described it as, and I quote, a modern biblical palace in Jerusalem. The King David Hotel was styled as an example of palazzo-inspired grand hotel architecture built of local stone. The King David, which was opened in January 1931, 
aim to provide lecture in Portport at a level previously unknown in Palestine. The hotel was known even before its official opening as certainly the most beautiful in the Orient, realizing in modern form the image of the Palace of Solomon, consolidating the charm of the Orient in the luxury of the Occident. The journalist Gabriel Ciccone described the social life in the hotel bar and emphasized further the King David's unique position during the war. And he wrote, and at 11.30, the barman Francois was already on duty, and between 12 and quarter to two, you could meet people from all corners of the empire who had found their way here. The King David Hotel was the gathering place between the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. This one came from London and that one from the other one from Calcutta and another from Chongqing. Saruk mother, Queen Nasli, well, did I meet her? In Egypt, I could have, couldn't have met her or his younger sister, Farida. When the British asked, Rabbi, well, were you born? I used to say, born in Tel Aviv, educated in the King David. Can you tell us about the Arab Women's Association in Palestine's activities during World War II? Young Arab women of the upper and middle class living in Jerusalem remembered the war years as a time of prosperity and peaceful, and the difficult pre-war economic conditions improved by war demands. Hala Statatini wrote, both types seem to forget the enmity of over 20 years and two years. It was true we were enjoying a prolonged holiday that we knew soon must come to an end. The atmosphere in the city was described as characterized by certain tolerance, plurality, and urbanity which coexist with traditional values. Jerusalem was known for active women organizations which were prominent in the women movement of the United The Arab Women Association in Palestine included local bodies that were affiliated to three and were mainly concerned with social activity and promoting the status of women. Their education and professional training, but sometimes also took part in political protests and fundraising. The members came mostly from the elite Christian and Muslim family in Jerusalem, Jasper, Ramallah, Naples, and Haifa, and to a lesser extent, than those in Gaza and Mamla. The activity was accompanied by social and national rhetoric, as well as families disposed the scope of the need to promote the status of women and their education and the need for equality with men, including involvement in politics. Can you tell us about the activities of the Templar Christians in Palestine during World War II? What were their views of fascism and Nazism? The German Templars lived in Palestine since the 19th century and developed successful settlements, including in Jerusalem. They enjoyed good relations with the authorities and all the communities in Palestine. However, with the rise of the Nazis to power, 
the majority of the German Texas community in Jerusalem is in the rest of Palestine, supported the regime, and many also joined the Nazi party. When the war broke out, some were expected in this column activity. Half of the community was arrested, put in detention forms, and later deported to Australia. By the end of the mandate, there were no Templar settlements in Palestine. The Templars, Nazi. The Nazi organization in Palestine started in 1943. At the beginning, part of the Templar community, especially the older generation, did not support the new regime, fearing that the community religious first would be formed by the Nazi ideological called by Hitler. However, the majority of the settlers gradually moved to support Nazism. The Gestapo threatened the minority who refused to join the Nazi party, sending them official letters via the German consulate, stating that the German authorities would take adequate steps against their relatives in Germany. The Nazis in Palestine aimed to control the Templars' colony, and the German consulate in Jaffa served as a center for clandestine activities, including hunting illegal propaganda pumped up with German and Arabic against the Jews and the British authority. Party houses were opened in all the temple settlements where the members would sit lecture and playing. Three trips to Germany, especially for young people, were organized during the summer where they were given Nazi indoctrination. War and internment. Palestine has put High Commissioner Michael detailed the initial steps performed by the authorities in his report for colonial secretary McDonald. Among the first measures taken on the umbrella of hostility were the internment of German male nationals of military age. The roundup was carried out by the police on the afternoon of 3rd September and the persons were detained in Africa. In return, see the inhabitants of the four German colonies of Sparona and Vienna in the Jaffa sub district and Waldheim and Bethlehem near Nazareth were confined behind barbed wire within the settlement era. Within those limits, they were permitted to carry on their normal occupation. Similar restrictions with the, without the barbed wire were enforced in the German colony in Haifa in Jaffa. He reported that October, three tribunals were set up in Jerusalem, Jaffa, and Haifa. Their role was to hear applications from Germans who, on account of their political views, claimed exemption from the hardship of internment and segregation. The custodian for enemy property was also appointed. The Germans in Palestine were prepared for the war and expected British regulation. More came out of the backyard of the German consulate in Jerusalem, where the officials were busy burning documents. During the late August 1939, young Germans were ordered to leave the country to avoid detention, and more than 200 of them sent from Haifa. Meanwhile, the detainees continued their cultural life, established school and conducted celebrations in the Nazi style, including 
dogs on Hitler's birthday. Later in the war, they were joined by other Italians, Italians, Bulgarians, and Romanians. When Italy declared war on 10th June 1940, the British tightened their control. Radio steps were taken away, and work in the field was allowed only underground by Jewish police. Shortly afterward, the Germans were transferred to Australia. The British also arrested for Jews who were German nationals, while the Christian German demanded that only Aryans would be detained in their camp. After the German husband of Jewish women and the German uh, wife of Jews and English citizens, especially those who had only arrived in Palestine a short time before the war, were uh, discharged. You write as follows at the end of your book. You write as follows, and I'm going to share the quote with you. If Rahib Nashashibi were alive today and was asked by his friends in Jerusalem to return from his exile, I do not think he would want to. The Jerusalem he knew and built and served and loved does not exist anymore. His Jerusalem was peaceful, calm, romantic, poetic, friendly, and beautiful. The Jerusalem of today is just the opposite. His old Jewish friends were noble people. Advocate Eliahar, Professor Magnus, and Dr. Mandel, and many others in the field of literature, the arts, and politics. In the old Palestine, we used to share with our Jewish neighbors most of their religious festivals. We understood the real meaning of those feasts. The Jerusalem of yesterday had dignity and grace, but the Jerusalem of today has no relation whatever to the Jerusalem we loved. The city had a touch of the holy that seems to have gone. Do you personally agree? Why or why not? Why did you choose to end the book with these specific words? This quotation of Nasser Eddin Nashashibi is a part of the quote where he compared the old and the new Jerusalem and the existence during the British mandate life in Israel, which is for him was a negative change. I included it not for the political point of view, but as it can symbolize a longing for the more peaceful part of the city. As I commented in the final paragraph of the book, the Israeli poet Nathaniel Latan wrote about the search for the soul of Jerusalem. Everyone has a city named Jerusalem. History had to move on, but the memory of unique time, different from what it people experienced before or afterward, still linger on a bitter sweet reminiscence of long gone days. Who was Eric Mendelssohn? Can you tell us about him? Eric Mendelssohn lived and worked in Jerusalem by 1935 to 1930, Mendelssohn was an architect with an international reputation. He had behind him a brilliant 15 years career, during which he designed significant buildings, such as the Einstein Observatory in Potsdam and modern style department store for his friend Dalman Schotten. His office employed 40 architects 
and draftsmen and was considered one of the biggest in Europe. However, as a result of Hitler's right to power, Mendelssohn was forced to leave Berlin. He arrived in London in 1934, where he opened an architecture firm. But following an invitation from Chopin to design a house and library for him in Jerusalem, Mendelssohn came to Jerusalem and allied his first visit in Palestine in 1923. This day extended for a period of good sport creation that lasted almost seven years. The louder and more important project Mendelssohn carried out in Palestine were Hadassah Hospital on Mount Focus, Government Hospital now Rambam Hospital in Haifa, Anglo-Palestinian Bank in Jerusalem, Zalman Shotkin Residence and Library in Apia, and Weizmann House in Warsaw. In all these works, he desired to create a synthesis between East and West is evident. Mendelssohn, unlike most modern architects working in the country at the time, did not believe in the uniform and corruption style that suited every place. He thought that the house should be modeled in style, noble in appearance, and fit in with the spirit of place, and was trying to bridge the first Christian precision with the rhyme of the noisy. He and his wife, Luinda, used to hold receptions at the main house, the renovated in Moldavia, to which the most well-known people of the city were invited, including the High Commissioner the Alton Bokwokov, who was their good home. At the outbreak of the war, civilian construction was stopped, and Rendelson did not receive any more commission. In 1940, following the German army's victory, Louisa Mendelssohn wrote, It seemed clear to us that when they would reach Palestine, the terrible slaughter of the Jews would occur. We had not escaped the fury of Hitler to be delivered to his fury in Palestine. The couple departed Palestine for the United States at March, in March 1941, where Mendelssohn died in 1915. Can you tell us about the bombing of the Palestine radio station on August 2nd, 1939 by the Irgun? Who were the casualties? How did the Irgun pull it off? What were the ramifications of the attack? The Times Square radio station in Minisanda Street in central Jerusalem was first subjected to terrorist attack when three bombs were placed there by Irgun operatives on 2nd June 1939. Two stations of Berlin, a Jewish immigrant from South Africa and an Arab Christian were king. The Irgun decided, as part of action against the British government, to damage the PBS station or stop the border. What happened next was described in the Daily Paper Haal. At 5.20 p.m., three out explosions were heard downtown. It soon became clear that there were explosions in the new broadcasting house. One bomb exploded in the control room, in the control room where the machine directing the transfer of programs from the studio in Jerusalem to the broadcasting station in Ramallah, Palafin. Another bomb exploded in the room of Nisik 
they write them down who were busy at the time broadcasting the English Chamber of Hour. The third ball exploded in one of the other rooms of the studio. The equipment in the control room was mostly damaged. There was also severe damage to the building. Broadcasting was stopped immediately, and after a short pause, it was continued by the Ramallah station using records. A few moments after the explosion, the police arrived at the scene. May Reichenberg, who was injured in the explosion, died soon after from a secondary shock at the hospital. An Arab engineer, Adib Mansour, from the control room, was the one who rescued May Reichenberg from the broadcast room and when returning to the control room, he himself was suddenly wounded and with him, one of the technicians was slightly injured. Who was Elsa Lasker Schuller? Elsa Lasker Schuller was raised in Los Pulos German-Jewish court. She was harassed and threatened by the Nazis and immigrated to Switzerland and finally settled in Jerusalem in 1937. In 1938, Lasker was stripped of her German citizenship, and the, at the outbreak of war prevented any return to the air. Lasker Schuller's presence in Jerusalem was noted particularly by other writers and artists, many of whom were also exiles from Nazi Germany. When poetry reading were arranged for her, she seemed to be revived and would wear her best clothes and read out her poems in a strong voice. An emotional reading of porn was conducted in late June 1939 in the newly built Shoku Library in Lehavna. And there, the description goes, Josok the Prince of Thebes, appeared in her usual blue kaftan and leopard skin tip. There were strange dark days, and now in somehow suitable strange and dark way. The great vaulting poet seized the roar of high priestesses as she rang the tiny bells stamped around her wrist and in intoned her biblical poem to a rough crowd of learned refugees. And for the single night, all the world rules were pushed aside as the exiles were restored towards the Ebrilos, a place they used to boil for. Lasker Schuller was banned eventually for giving reading and lectures because they were held in German. Habib Nahr, who immigrated to Palestine from Germany, wrote on 8 August 1942 about one of the evenings of the poem reading in the crucial times of 1942 before El Alamein. It took place in synagogue and met the Emunah, Truths, and Faith. The place was full, and for the immigrants from Germany, she represents a culture that was brutally trampled upon. Her last volume of verse, The Blue Piano, was published in June 1943 in Jerusalem in an edition of 33, 330 copies. The dedication of the book represented the vision of life as a refugee in exile. To my unforgettable friends, men and women in the cities of Germany, and to those who, like myself, were expelled and now are scattered around the world. 
In the poem by Blue Piano, she wrote that she cannot play the piano since the day the world turned boot. In 1944, Lasker Shula had deteriorated. She suffered a health heart attack on 15 January and died on 22nd January 1944. Can you tell us about the activities of Teddy Kollek during the years of World War II? Teddy Kollek was born in Hungary and grew up in Vienna. He moved to Palestine in 1934. He helped organize the immigration to Palestine and the rescue of young people from Germany and German-occupied countries during the war. Kollek was a staff member of the political department of the Jewish Agency, and he was a part of the intelligence contact with the British organizations and was placed in charge of contacting European Jewish underworld movement in 1942. Kollek was later elected mayor of Jerusalem in 1965 and served until 1963. At the time, the city was divided into Israeli West Jerusalem and Jordanian East Jerusalem sectors. Following the Six-Day War of Jewel, 1967, he became mayor of United Jerusalem. Teddy Collett summarized later his role in the cooperation with the British and American intelligence organization, especially during the war. He wrote, Our policy was to be simple and human. There really was no need to spy on the British. We did not want them to be suspicious of us either, so that we could work together with them, even though there was a difference in emphasis between our respective aims. They mainly wanted to defeat the Germans. We wanted to save Jews. It was not in the relationship before today. He described the relationship during the war. In fact, a close relationship developed between us when the war started. We really need to gather against Hitler. Sometimes the British and Palestine joined us in opposing political decisions made in London. The various intelligence services in which we were, were torn. On the one hand, they wanted to exploit our war potential. And during certain critical periods of the war, our value was very high and constituted a good portion of the overall capacity in terms of both knowledge and manpower. On the other hand, the British were constantly instructed from London not to make too much use of our potential so that they would not be obligated to us at the end of the war. Can you tell us about it? Katie Antonius. Katie Antonius was a well-known Jerusalem hostess who lavished, who lavished parties in her chef d'art home where the center of Jerusalem affluent society. Nazar wrote that Katie Antonius was not pretty, but had bright green eyes, thick dark hair, and her appearance was full of grace and light. She loved the company of people and knew how to charm both men and women. She had her old style of clothing and her clothes were made in Paris. Despite her friendly and refined appearance, she was tough and fearless. She was in her thirties where she married George Antonius, a Christian historian and publicist. As, as an author, his most famous work was the book The Arab Awakening, 
published in 1938, with examining the birth of Arab nationalism. They moved to a large and beautiful house on a hill in Sheikh Jarrah, Karam el Mufti, rented from the Mufti al Hussein. The rooms were modern, the floors of the spacious guest rooms on the entrance floor were covered in a fancy Persian carpet, and the walls were decorated with Persian miniatures, picture of engraving by the English painter David Robert, and impressionist painter. Kathy and George Antonius occupied a central place in Anglo-Arab society of the colonial mandatory Jerusalem and often, often hostile refined enough in their home. However, only in the 1940s, where George Antonius already was not at home, he moved to Beirut after the separation, and Jerusalem would get international attention because of the world war, Kathy Antonius would turn the house into a famous concert salon. In the 40s, where her role of need. Her guests were typical of the Jerusalem of the time. Many foreigners who stayed or passed through the city during the war, political exiles among them princes and princesses, local and foreign intellectual and artists. The regulars were elite Arabs from Jerusalem or other cities in Palestine. Elitons who served in the government or the army and those who came to visit for Cairo. The house was sometimes like a French salon on the 19th century, and yet it became more and more political. It was the only place in Jerusalem where the guests were exposed to the views and propaganda of the Arab side again the values. Jews were hardly seen there, except for people like Arthur Kessler, who was a Zionist at the time, but famous writer. One of the regular visitors to the salon was the commander of the British Army in Palestine in 1946-47, General Sir Evelyn Barker, who was in love with Captain Antonius. She called him my little general, and he listened to her opinions about the situation in Palestine. Can you tell us about Annie Landau? Annie Landau was headmistress of the Evelina de Rocky School in Jerusalem from 1899 until her death in, 19, in 1945. In 1804, Landa was appointed an MBE member of the most excellent order of British Empire and the occasion of the Silver Jubilee of King George V in 1935, she was awarded a silver medal for her productive work in education. She was often referred to of the Queen of Jerusalem. Although some was out of sympathy in Zionist aspiration, she was one of the best loved and admired personalities in Jerusalem. However, Landau's fame did not only lie in the southern field of education. She was well known as one of the most illustrious officers in Jerusalem during the British mandate. In the early 1920s, where there were new cafes, only one small cinema, no radio, and few social clubs in Jerusalem. Annie Landau was a celebrated social singer. Her salon was on the top floor of the Abyssinian Palace. It served as the Evelina School Building. Shaw wrote, The spacious grandeur of the 
palace built for the Abyssinian royal family when it stayed in Jerusalem, with its beautiful tight floor, its warmth and in comfort, enabled Landau to entertain in style. In this period, she favored first two boards, which were attended by British and consular officials, by leaders of the Jewish and Christian community, and occasionally by Muslim leaders as well. Traditional conventions were not necessarily followed. Helen Bentich, a frequent guest, described a ball in March 1919, for which Landau dressed as a Dutch peasant. The hall itself was decorated in Japanese style, and the food imported from Cairo was reported to be excellent. In addition to hosting the famous costume ball, Landau entertained diplomatic visitors to Jerusalem. Her strong personality and the support of British Jews or Christians, including Titan Lord and Megan, gave her undisputed prominence. Most of the time, she carefully navigated the political thoughts of Jerusalem. Abba Evans, a relation brought in the memory. Through the generosity of the Anglo Jewish Association, which sponsored her excellent school, she was able to entertain lavishly and often. Rather like a doja queen than nobody would likely contact it. She was rigorously orthodox and no patient had no patience with Zionism. Her circle included the British High Commissioner, judges, and leading officials. Arab notables, some Jews belonged to the governing establishment, such as Edwin Samuel, the son of the first high commissioner, or those whose views and ways of life gave them a dissident quality in their eyes, such as Dr. Judah Mahinet, president of the Hebrew Methodists. Can you tell us about Amal al-Atrash? Amal Asmahan, renamed was Amal al-Atrash. She began her artistic career at, in the age of 16, where she first performed at the Cairo Opera House. Asmahan was the sister of the legendary good singer Farid al-Atbash. In her short life, she died at the age of 32. Asmahan managed not only to make a great career as a singer and star in two Egyptian kings, but also to be involved in the power intrigues between Britain and France in Syria. She died in a mysterious star accident in 1944. The war situation in Vichy controlled Syria and Lebanon became critical for the British, and they preferred invasion of those countries in June 1941. They approached Asmahan toward the former wife of the Emir Hassan, leader of the Jewish Druze Mountain, as Brigadier Ethan Clayton of British military intelligence in Cairo, decided to use Asmahan to convince or bribe Hassan to support Britain against the Vichy French, for which he was paid 40,000 pounds. On 28 May 1941, just over a week, before the Allied invention, invasion of Syria and Lebanon on 8 June 1941, Asmahan drove to the Orient Palace Hotel in Damascus, where she met the Emir Hattam, who once more 
Peter and the Spears divorced his son's wife and remarried a clan. She met Gauls and Syrian leaders at the bar of the Orient Palace Hotel. She made secret journeys back to Jerusalem to report on the opinion of Syrian politicians and the state of French defenses. Leaping to the Golan Heights, disguised as the Black Slave. She helped to ensure that the Druze did not fight from the Germans and Vichy, and then some three weeks later spoiled successful foreign successful allied advances in Syria, wearing the dazzling white, mounting the cloak of the Atlas ladies, and clutching a gold skin bag of gold sovereign, as Maham made a sensation in the victory parade on the Mestos on third July. Can you tell us about Paul Ernst Fackenheim? Paul Ernst Fackenheim was a German-Jewish army lieutenant who fought in the First World War and received the Iron Cross. In 1939, he was arrested and transferred to Dachau concentration camp. In 1941, Fackenheim was recruited by the German military intelligence, Albert, to serve as a spy. His mission lasted only two days. He was detained and interrogated by the British authorities who kept him in captivity until 1946. He survived the war as one of the few Jews to be freed from a camp by German authorities and returned to Germany. In 1941, Admiral William Canary, head of the Abwehr, decided to find a Jewish German who also spoke Hebrew and who had a military background and parachuted him into Palestine. Canary believed that in return for saving his life, such a man would work in Palestine for German intelligence without being noticed among the Jewish population. An Abwehr officer was back to Dachau to look for an appropriate passenger. Fackenheim impressed the officer as the right man for the job and he was taken from Dachau floor to Berlin and then to Athens where he was forged in intelligence gathering method by an other officer, Hans Müller. Fackenheim learned how to operate a specific radio transmitter, write in invisible ink, identify British armored vehicles and tanks, and also instructed in parachute jumping. His code name was Paul Ho. The Gestapo and its aides were against his mission and even tried by faith to arrest him in an Athens restaurant. An officer lawyer to Heimold Himmler, head of the SS, was instructed to keep off the British of the planned parachute landing. He also provided false information that the target list would be a German SS general by the name of Ellen Koch, whose mission was to instigate a major Arab revolt against the Bush. On 10 October 1941, Paul Fackenheim parachuted near Haifa, landing safely in an orange grove of a nearby kibbutz. He managed to escape from the troops searching for him. Fackenheim decided, though, early to keep, give himself up to the British authorities and seek their sympathy and understanding for his impressive but unlikely story. Entering a British camp, he surrendered to an officer 
telling him that like so many other Jewish refugees, he had landed on the beach the night before. But when the officer command, in command saw Pakenham's false identity paper with the name Power Paul, he was immediately arrested and suspected of being none other than Erich Paul, the very German agent the British were looking for. He was flown to Cairo and interrogated by British intelligence. His story of having been a prisoner in Dachau and only agreeing to undertake the, uh, the other spy mission to save his life carried weight with a few of the officers, by many, but many others were convinced that he was indeed the notorious Elfor. It appeared that he had some vague instruction about getting in touch with our then this combined with the warning against the unreliability of Arabs and their wounds. Back in time, was put on trial and seemed certain that he would be shot by Clarence Ford and a spy. Especially as he had done himself in wearing not a German uniform, but civilian clothes. But his lawyer managed to find in the last moment the local Jewish woman who had known Pastor Time in Germany during the Clay War days and who identified him to the satisfaction of the presiding judge. Paul Ernst Packenheim survived the war, spending the rest of the British in the British Imperial camp. What became of him in later life is still little known as he slipped into can you tell us about Edwin Samuel? Edwin Herbert Samuels, second Viscount Samuels, was a Jewish-British lord, the son of Beatrice Bartling and Herbert Samuels, Palestine's Air High Commissioner. In the spring of 1917, he joined the Royal Artillery and was posted to the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. He also served in the Jewish Legion. After the First World War, he joined the mandatory government in Palestine. He served during part of the war at the chief center in Jerusalem and later chief center in Palestine and was the last landing era director of the Palestine Broadcasting Service. He was the one, he was one of the most senior Jewish British officials and described in his memory the life in Palestine and Jerusalem and his difficult but intriguing war is censored in war time. As we bring our interview today to a close, can you tell us about what you've been working on next or what your intended future projects are with this book behind you? Well, currently I'm working on the translation of the book to an Hebrew version. And I hope to publish it in Israel sometime in the future. Amazing. It will be a genuine contribution and it is a true masterpiece. I'm absolutely delighted to have had the opportunity to learn from you, listen to you, and absorb your erudition and wisdom during the course of this dialogue together. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure for me. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And most of all, it was my honor. Thank you. As we end 
Today, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Daphna Sharfman. We have been discussing her newly published book, Jerusalem in the Second World War, published by Routledge Publishers 2024. Daphna Sharfman is the author of books and articles in the fields of human rights, human rights and foreign policy, gender studies, and the British mandate in Palestine. She was involved in international human rights activity and represented Israel in the UN Third Committee. Thank you very much.